This episode of Asymmetrical Haircuts is supported by JusticeInfo.net. It's not an isolated crime type that can just be ignored if you don't happen to care about birds, but it's about the impact in the rule of law. And that's something I feel really strongly about. So for example, there's a big link with corruption, with money laundering. Those are embedded into wildlife crime. You couldn't have wildlife crime at the level that it is. And it's a huge crime type, fourth largest transnational organized crime. Justice plays an important role. I consider this tribunal a false tribunal and indictments, false indictments. Such abhorrent crimes must not go unpunished. Proceedings will be long and complex. All rise. Welcome to Asymmetrical Haircuts. I'm Stephanie van der Berg, and as always, I have Janet Anderson with me. Hi, Janet. Hi, Steph. Today we're taking a walk on the wild side. Yes. Oh, God, what a cliche. Oh, I've, I've had all holiday to think of this. <laughs> I was very happy with my pun. But yes, we are taking a look at wildlife crime and how it interacts with other criminal behavior. And to talk us through this type of crime, we don't usually deal with with the kind of court cases that we usually follow. We've invited Olivia Spack-Goldman of the Wildlife Justice Commission. Hi, Olivia. Hi there. Thanks so much for having me. For the very observant and probably also deeply geeky among you, you may recognize uh, Olivia's name from her previous positions in the Office of the Prosecutor of the ICC. She was at the U.S.-Iran Claims Tribunal and she worked at the ICTY. And now she spends her days at a somewhat secret, totally nondescript office location in the Hague area, surrounded by lovely pictures of tigers and statues of pangolins. So we were very lucky to be able to visit her in the office previously. Yeah, and I saw those statues of pangolins and I thought she really is living the dream. But let's start with the very basics of this issue. What is wildlife crime? Well, wildlife crime is a really multifaceted topic. So it addresses the killing for profit and the trafficking for profit of our biodiversity. So it's about animals that live on the ground. It's about fish that live in the sea and other marine species. And it's about uh, timber and other kind of fauna and flora. So it's really about the decimation of our biodiversity for profit by criminal syndicates. I can see how this kind of intersects with some of the stuff that we've covered because we normally do international criminal justice here on the podcast. And as soon as you say timber, you know, it has a resonance for me. But I'm thinking that yours is quite a narrow kind of way of looking at it. It's not conservation that you're doing. It's a, it's specifically the, the crime aspect. Yes? Exactly. And for me, the so my background is international criminal justice as well. I saw it as a clear link to this issue. And some people kind of said, wow, you went kind of off piste with this. And for me, it was absolutely clear. It's this red line about holding governments to account, about getting them to live up to their obligations. And particularly in the criminal law sphere, where we have really clear legislation and implementing legislation, and we've agreed as an international community that certain things are unacceptable. And whether that's, you know, targeting civilians or wiping out the rhino, these things are not allowed. We've agreed to that. So how do we get governments to enforce those and implement those agreements? So we really focus on the criminal law side of it. We come to it looking at it from a sort of diplomacy, uh, public policy, but really about how we get these legal issues addressed. So similar, for me at least, it was a very easy uh, shift from my background. But the word that I can remember reading in your stuff is this word convergence, you know, something to do with how these things cross over, coincide. I mean, what, what do you mean by, by that? So wildlife crime has a big impact. You could think it's very small. It's, you know, a few 
rhinos in Africa or birds and, and big cats in South America, but really it's got a huge impact. So in terms of the public health and security and safety, but it also links really closely with other forms of organized crime. And that's something we focused on a lot to say it's not an isolated crime type that can just be ignored if you don't happen to care about birds, but it's about the impact in the rule of law. And that's something I feel really strongly about. So for example, there's a big link with corruption, with money laundering. Those are embedded into wildlife crime. You couldn't have wildlife crime at the level that it is. And it's a huge crime test, fourth largest transnational organized crime, um, which I knew nothing about before I started. But, you know, it's worth, the impacts are estimated to be $1 to $2 trillion a year, the economic impact by the World Bank. If you look at wildlife crime together with so terrestrial along with fisheries and timber, that's up to $200 billion U.S. dollars a year in terms of the profit generated. And wildlife crime alone, only terrestrial, is about $23 billion per year. So it's huge impact, a lot of profits. So you have these criminal networks that are doing it. It's not just, you know, local communities that, that need something to eat. That's not what we're talking about. It's like if you look at drugs, it's the same thing. You have to go after the, the Pablo Escobars rather than the kid on the corner. I mean, the kid on the corner you also need to deal with, but you've got to be looking through the network to the higher uh, echelons. And these networks are utilizing their facilities, their infrastructure for a variety of different crime types. So the corrupt customs official is letting maybe wildlife out and they're letting drugs in. And they're, you know, human trafficking really linked also with fisheries crime. But we've seen a lot of these interlinkages with other forms of crime type. And I think it's really important to focus on that as well to show that it's a much bigger problem. You said the studies show a lot of uh, connections between other crimes. Uh, you mentioned the corruption, the drugs. Can you give some examples of, of how, like, concrete things that we would see? Sure, and today's a good day to do it because there was a case that the U.S. Department of Justice brought against four individuals. It's known as the Coroma case. And these were individuals in Africa that were transporting wildlife product to all over the world, but it, it, there was always a U.S. link. So it's either a U.S. financial institution. So the U.S. has very broad jurisdiction. And they almost haphazardly as sort of incidentally also transported some heroin. So the U.S. said, oh, this is a great opportunity to get them. Also using the, so it's not just fish and wildlife service, which has done incredible work, but they can use the DEA as well. And the more robust powers that an agencies such as the DEA has. So the individuals were, you know, they built up a great case. They uh, arrested them. They were extradited to the United States. And Chroma was just sentenced, I think, yesterday to about five years and three months by the U.S. District Court. We're recording kind of mid-August for this at the moment. So we'll make sure we put a link to, to this because I'm sure we'll be able to find the details of this. But we also have examples. We did a report in I think, May 2021 where we looked at 10 case studies because What is so interesting about this, I was talking to someone at the UN years ago, and they said, everybody talks about this convergence of crimes, but no one's ever documented it, so I'm not sure it really exists. And for me, that's like a red flag. I'm like, all right, guys, let's pull it all together. We can use stuff from our own investigations, but also open source information. We did this, I think, a very interesting report. We've also done some webinars and podcasts on it because it's so important to really see these linkages where these criminal networks uh Um, involve a multiple, whether it's multiple environmental crimes or, as I mentioned, corruption and money laundering. But we've seen linkages between timber crime and wildlife crime, uh, where they hide it there. We've seen a lot of corruption in timber in timber cases as well. We've seen people human trafficked that then are trafficking wild tigers. Um, so there's just a multitude of different ways and typologies in terms of how this happens. So sometimes, for example, they'll trade, they'll barter. 
you know, you give us the human slaves and, and we'll give you the, the fish. And sometimes it's a complete career shift. So they say wildlife trafficking is getting to be kind of riskier, which is good. We want that to be riskier. So then they go into call centers, scam centers, or they're, it's kind of they've got the network already. They've got the infrastructure for legal goods, and then they use illegal goods there as well, and then different ones of so timber as well as drugs, for example. So it's really mired. Do we know, because there's a lot of convergence, you say, with wildlife crime, and there's a lot of convergence, I think, just naturally, just as you said. Do you have percentages for that? We don't have percentages for the amount of linkages, which is really something missing. In this area in general, there's a sincere lack of data and of intelligence information. So that's something that we at the Wildlife Justice Commission are really pushing governments to do. Is you need to be collecting it. You need to be analyzing it properly. There's no overall sort of database like you have for other crime types, which you need that if you really want to be effective in addressing it. But there is some information that it's increasing significantly. So Edgardo Buscaglia, who's just fantastic scholar at Columbia and has just done a tremendous amount of work in looking through judicial case law. So actually looking at the case files of that have gone through the court system and looking at organized crime groups and which charges that are being brought. And he's on our independent review panel and he participated in one of our webinars on this. And just as an example, he found that the incidence of convergence, including wildlife crime and other forms of organized crime, in the last 20 years, went up 749% in the Seminola cartel in Mexico. And he had examples from Russian cartels and, and Ukrainian, and, and it's all going up just tremendously because it's smart business. You've already got the infrastructure in place, and it's diversification also. You don't want to put all your eggs in, you know, in one basket, so to speak, so you spread your risk around a little bit. So it's increasing significantly. It's a huge problem, and governments aren't doing nearly enough to address it. I was quite interested um, by this idea that some networks kind of do it ad hoc. Uh, you know, they're not really committed to it, but others, this becomes their new career as such, and it becomes the essential uh, thing that they do. Could you talk through a couple of examples of those? Sure. So there's some examples where networks start out doing drugs, for example, and, you know, they get it linked to some rhino horn or some... Live, the live pet trade is a huge problem as well, baby turtles, especially like commodities. So if they're doing drugs and then they add in rhino horn, for example. So they're using these infrastructure already and they're, sometimes they see that the risk is lower with wildlife crime. Why is that? Because governments aren't paying attention to the way they are to drugs. So they don't need to be as operationally savvy as they would do if, when they're trafficking in drugs. Because when you're trafficking in drugs... You know you've got different authorities that have robust mandates that can go after you. Whereas wildlife crime, nobody's thinking about it. It's not a priority for most governments. They're not using the advanced investigative techniques that they use for drugs and other types of organized crime. So it's, a, it's seen as a safer way, sort of low risk, high reward. And the profit margin is huge. So it makes it you know, really attractive for criminals that have a lower risk tolerance. It makes perfect sense to do this. So what we try and do is to shift that dynamic so that the risk goes up and then people are less willing to go into this because they're devastating our planet by doing this. It's a finite commodity. We only have so many helmeted hornbills left and elephants, so we need to be doing something. So we need to ratchet up. We need to be much more professional in our approach by using the tools and techniques we have from fighting other forms of organized crime. And when you talk about huge margins, you just said a lot about rhino horns. What is the margin on smuggling a rhino horn? 
we're actually coming out with a report on this, so that's a good teaser. So the the profit margin, obviously, it, it shifts depending on where you are. So for Rhinohorn, if you're in Africa, the cost is lower than when you get to the final consumer markets in, in Asia. And we always deal in wholesale, just, you know, kilos and kilos of it. But it's, for Rhinohorn, what's interesting is it's not as valuable as, as the narrative. I think there was 65000 per kilo or something was kind of the, the going rate people were talking about it. So people were actually going into this sort of crime type thinking it was really profitable, whereas it wasn't. We've seen it. It's about half of that in what we've seen. So we think that's really important to tell, you know, what's what's really happening. And we get all this information from our interactions with the criminals. So we we engage, we do undercover investigations, intelligence-led um, engaging with the criminals with a multitude of different and really getting a sense of what's happening in the field in a way that um, I don't think anyone has, has done so far. I'm interested in knowing how you're managing to work with law enforcement in this case. You're saying that if you compare it to the the way drugs are dealt with and that's taken very seriously, are you finding allies in different law enforcement agencies who are saying, yes, now we get it? And what are they doing then? Absolutely. So the, the original model of the Wildlife Justice Commission was based on the concept that governments weren't doing enough, and we had to hold governments accountable for not bringing the cases that they should be bringing, not going for the top-level criminals, stopping at the, the poachers. So the idea was we would put together, we would do these investigations, we would put together case files, we would give it to the government, engage in diplomacy to get them to bring the cases. We thought probably, you know, they wouldn't all the time, and then we would hold these public hearings in the Peace Palace to call attention to it and to put pressure on the governments to be bringing these cases. We started our investigations. We did an investigation into a village called Nikkei in Vietnam, which is um, outside of uh, Hanoi, and it was well-known as like a marketplace for illegal wildlife product. I mean, anybody could go in and buy it. There was a police station right there. They weren't doing anything. We did an investigation, came up with 53 individuals that we thought should be prosecuted. The Vietnamese, you know, they took their time. They didn't They didn't do what we thought they needed to do. So we ended up holding a public hearing in The Hague, in the Peace Palace. And we've got this, you know, for the international lawyers, just your, your group, it's, you know, who's who on our independent review panel, just some phenomenal lawyers, jurists, uh, yeah, investigative I've seen, journalists. I've seen you've got a lot of connections yeah. I mean, to our world. Exactly. Yeah. No, and it's just phenomenal. And we're so grateful for them for doing this. But so we did this public hearing. And since then, we've been working very closely with the Vietnamese. So we always try and reach a hand out as well. So it's not only the Vietnamese. What we've seen is we, every government we've asked to do something, they've done it, which is fantastic. But we kind of had to think, okay, so the public hearing, it's still there and we'll do it if we need to. But we haven't had to do it for a number of years because we've had these sort of, yeah, this great response from law enforcement. And there's a willingness to do something. If you give them everything they need to do it, they're willing to do it. And so when we start out with, we'll do everything for you. And our goal, and we've seen it progress significantly in the last few years, is to get the governments to be able to do it themselves. So that's training and capacity building. I can imagine that it's a lot of data work even and uh, you know very specialized stuff what else can i imagine you know tapping into people's phones is that what you're working on exactly exactly so we work with the government you know working with them to develop the skills but also to apply the skills so uh it's important to do training but if you get everybody together in a hotel room somewhere and you know for five days and then leave that's not sustainable so we work with them on live cases and we've had some great result long term. I mean, our cases can take years, but we had a um, great result in Mozambique recently with the arrest of Navarra, who was just a notorious wildlife criminal responsible for just massive amounts of trafficking of rhino horn and, and other products. 
um, and he'd been around for years, and everybody kind of knew him, but they but they hadn't applied those special investigative techniques that you mentioned to trying to get him arrested. And they did, and it's fantastic. It made a huge impact. Um, similarly, in Nigeria, working with the Nigerian Customs Service. So again, you have to like look around. Who are the, which are the agencies that are going to be most amenable, that are willing to do what it takes to bring these cases and. Success breeds success also. You're helping those governments and those agencies to really um, to be empowered, to take these great cases, to be successful, and then they invest more resources. You know, it's developing political will from the, from the ground up, and we also do the top-down, obviously. Like the triple IM, but for wildlife, and then, and it's actually working. Absolutely. Triple IM being the yeah. sort of Syria investigating, yeah. but this is a lot more practical. You're achieving what all those international investigative mechanisms want, that you prepare cases and, and, and local law enforcement is actually kind of taking them up and prosecuting them there because there is no international path for that. That is exactly it. And that's what drew me to this organization and to my role as executive director. I mean, it's phenomenal and it's really working. And that's after, you know, almost 30 years of international justice. It's it's just a tremendous feeling to see it actually work. I mean, obviously, you know, you keep the pressure on and all that and working with them, but it's really effective and that's just that's so gratifying. We have to bring it back to this international criminal justice world. One example could be the Lord's Resistance Army in northern Uganda, but not while they're in northern Uganda, while they've been over the border in Central African Republic particularly. I mean, they have been linked to ivory smuggling uh, and so on as a way to fund themselves. I mean, do you see examples where these things coincide, that a group that's committing also terrible crimes against humanity is also involved with wildlife crimes? So in our, we've started in 2015, we started investigations really fully in 2016, and we haven't seen that sort of link, although I have read about it elsewhere. Perhaps it happened earlier before we started. But obviously, where you have situations where the rule of law is just decimated and you have conflict, you're going to have all kinds of criminal activity, so including wildlife crime. But we haven't seen it as like a specific typology in the way that we have seen with other types. This other organization, I think, did a report about when you have terrorist groups that control territory, when you pay them to go into that territory, you're basically sort of funding the terrorist movement. For humanitarian access or for some other access, you might have to pay people off. Exactly. And then the wildlife criminals are also doing that. So it's, But that's very roundabout. We haven't seen a direct link. But again, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. We're seeing more organized crime networks that are doing it for profit. And they're, that's their primary focus. So they're businessmen at the top for the most part. Yeah, they're not trying to change the world. They're not revolutionaries. They're not necessarily fighting against governments. But what they're doing is is just trying to, to make money and this is a good way of doing it. Yeah, we had this very famous example in the Netherlands uh, with a, a trial which was all about blood timber, which is like the blood diamonds, which was in the Liberia conflict. In the Netherlands, we have a Dutch uh, timber merchant who was basically convicted for war crimes because he traded illegal timber from Liberia for weapons with then uh, Liberian President Charles Taylor, who used it and used his militia, I think, to secure his illegal logging operations or the logging operations. So I'm wondering about Myanmar, obviously, particularly because Myanmar is full of timber, other resources that are there, probably wildlife. I don't know what the wildlife situation is there and uh, tremendous atrocities that are happening. Absolutely. And 
particularly timber crime, that's often, you know, it's on such a scale. And it's so that very often there's government involvement in it. And um, and there you would have more of a, or a more visible link, perhaps, with keeping regimes in place or with terrorist groupings. Um, but absolutely, there's a big rosewood trafficking, I believe, from, from Myanmar and other types of trafficking as well. So to the extent it's supporting a regime that's engaged in... Um, in crimes against humanity or or other types of international crimes, and there is that link. But we haven't seen it as much in terms of what we've investigated. I think we've covered a lot, but I'm wondering whether we need to talk about what's, you know, throw it ahead, what's, what's going to happen in the future. So what do you think needs to change in this area? You're saying you're getting a lot of success, but what needs to get better? What needs to improve? Right. So much needs to improve, and I've got all kinds of ideas. So... The good news is we, we know a lot of this already. It's just about implementation. And I think that's where we are in international justice more generally. Like we have a pretty good legal regime. It's about getting, you know, governments to apply it. That's a great broad statement, Olivia, but okay. <laughs> <laughs> so specifically with regard to wildlife, crime, and then fisheries and timber, which are included. But we need more coordination. So people are working, agencies are working in silos. They're not sharing information. They're not sharing intelligence, which makes it really hard to have a picture of what's going on. Organized crime moves across jurisdictions. So if you stop at your border, you're not going to be effective because they're going to be two steps ahead of you. So we need coordination. And I think it's it's on a variety of different levels. So you, within a government, you need task force, you need customs, you need the wildlife authority, but you need the organized crime police, you need the financial and taxes. So to get all these organizations together, broad mandates, but also explain what their interest is in this. So we need more coordination domestically. Internationally, you need more coordination and sharing of intelligence. We need a much more consistent intelligence collection and analysis so that you get the picture because you can spend all the resources you want, but if you're not going after the right individuals, you're not going to be making the impact that you want. So using intelligence analysis to really focus on the key individuals that are have the biggest impact. And the idea is really, at least how we see it, is to go after those most impactful offenders for the gravest crime. So it's got that idea of international criminal justice, which is, and then intelligence analysis is key to figuring out who those individuals are and their impact. So those are two things that we really stress. Also the use of advanced investigative techniques, specialized investigation techniques that we talked about. Those should be applied much more consistently by governments. And all of this is also a question of kind of political will. How do we generate the support for this? That the governments are thinking, okay, about limited priorities. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use my resources to address this. So we've mentioned you're based in The Hague, but why? Why is it based here? Well, the reason the Wildlife Justice Commission was based in The Hague was this concept of international justice. So there are horrific crimes occurring all over the world, and there are courts and tribunals to, to address many of them, yet wildlife crime is the fourth largest transnational organized crime, decimating our species and, and our, our biodiversity, and there's no international body that's addressing it, and there should be. And that should be in the Hague because it's at a level equal to other types of crimes that require international justice. So the idea was to base in the Hague to have it be a symbol of peace and justice and to be an accountability mechanism. And that's where the original idea came from doing these investigations and national dialogue and then eventually, if necessary, a public hearing in the Peace Palace. But it really tried to fit into this model of international justice. Are you also kind of trying to pull this into the bigger international justice sphere? For instance, we know that at the ICC there is this discussion about making ecocide a crime. Are you kind of also hitching your wagon to that and trying to get wildlife kind of included in the uh, crimes against humanity, uh, crimes against nature idea? 
Absolutely. And one, it's good for the for the recognition of the prioritization, but it's also, I think there's a significant link to it. So we did a panel recently on, if you look at, for example, sharks. So there's, we've lost, I think, 70% of the sharks since 1970. So we're really just you know wiping out the sharks. Sharks are apex predator. So they keep the ocean in balance. If you take those out, the ocean is less balanced. It's having a less, it's less able to absorb carbon. And we've also looked at wildlife crime as sort of an example of it could be like a case study for whether ecocide could actually work. And it's almost an easier one to use because it's already in the criminal law sphere, whereas you're not talking about sort of the administrative or the regulatory pollution sometimes is more challenging. But so I think there are these links, um, certainly looking at climate change, looking at ecocide, looking at also other international bodies that are relevant. So the, um, the UN Transnational Organized Crime Convention, obviously incredibly relevant. They're having a conference of parties bringing in their the UN Anti-Corruption Convention, bridging this gap between sort of the conservation environment world and the, the international criminal law and criminal law world. So this is really where we see our role. So at the end of the podcast, we always like to ask our asymmetrical haircuts questions. And, and the first is always, what didn't we ask you, but we should have, or what should we have paid more attention to? Well, I think we touched upon it briefly, but I'd really like to just take a moment to discuss the, the wide breadth of wildlife crime. Even if you're just talking about terrestrial crime, we focus on iconic species. So those are the, you know, the ones that people seem to care the most about because they're cute. They're the, the rhinos or the elephants. The pangolins. The pangolins, Which exactly. are my favorite, but they're, I guess they're not really super cute. Oh, they're people. pretty cute. A little scaly, but cute. The live pet trade, which is a huge problem that people don't think about. So the trafficking of orangutans, and I think today is... World Orangutan Day. Oh, right. We're recording August 19th for anybody who needs to know. Put Orangutan. World Orangutan Day in your calendar. Okay. Exactly. And these, I mean, the devastation that comes from orangutan trafficking is just huge. So they, they traffic babies, for example, and I think on average two adults are killed for every baby trafficked. And obviously there's a loss, there's a whole reasons behind it. But anyway, live pet trade is a huge problem. They traffic them so that people can keep them in, in, around their house wearing dresses and diapers, but also big cat trafficking, jaguars, tigers, turtles. Yeah, just there's such a variety of different species that are under attack for profit. It's just devastating. And then we're not even talking about in the fisheries sphere or, or the sea cucumbers and the abalone and the sharks. Um, and the timber as well. So just it's a huge problem that's been under the radar for a long time. And I think it's great that you guys are you know, taking the time to, to focus on this as well, because the devastation is immense and irreversible. And that's something that really concerns me. You mentioned a couple of cases, but um, you can also look back if you want. Do you have a favorite case or a trial, maybe in one of your other roles, or maybe one that uh, that you want to talk about uh, to do with your current current role, a wildlife case, maybe? Well, we have a phenomenal team, and I'm really, really impressed with, with the work that they do. And as I said, it can take years. It can take up to three, four years. One case I'd like to talk about that I can't, where I'm just incredibly proud of, of what the team pulled together. But for example, this case, Navarra, that I mentioned in Mozambique, it's a phenomenal example of great investigative work, building that relationship in a difficult country, finding those heroes that are willing to do what it takes. The organized crime police in Mozambique has just been fantastic really professional and and under difficult circumstances. So I'm really, you know, there's so many cases I could talk about, but I think the Navarro one's very recent and it was, he was an individual that people thought would never be arrested. 
And that is so great that, that the Motion Beacons did this and we could play a role in assisting them. So that's the one probably I'd like to, to focus on. Oh, that brings me back. I remember when uh, the Netherlands, they did this thing where they, with the Kabenhoven, they actually arrested him. And I called this other organization that does a lot with, with wildlife and environmental crime, Eyewitness, to ask a comment. And so I said, and they just arrested Gus Kabenhoven and he just went crazy on the phone. What? Are you serious? Are you kidding? They actually arrested him because they had done all these reports and I had reported a bit about them, so I knew who to call. And he was just gobsmacked that actually after all these years of writing reports, they actually arrested that guy. So that'll be Stephanie's next call in a in a week or two's time. The next time she finds a kingpin, she'll be on the court, on the phone and saying, "All right, comment for Reuters, please." Yes. So last question is always: Do you have any recommendations of anything you've been reading, watching, listening to that you'd like to share with people? It can be in this sphere. It can be something completely other. We're always happy with. Um, vampire or zombie uh, movies, anything that you want to say, but otherwise something in this sphere, if you, if you want to say, what would you recommend to our listeners? As I mentioned, we have this phenomenal independent review panel, and one of the members is Misha Glaney. And he, I think you guys are journalists, but I think everyone uh, either knows it or should have known it, McMafia. I just thought that was a fantastic book. And Yeah, uh, it's a tremendous book. Yeah. I mean, and uh, maybe some people know it through the TV series later but the original book and yeah you must know him also from his Yugoslav absolutely times. yeah I have a lot of the Michel Glenny fall of Yugoslavia I think his book is but I also have McMafia which is also fabulous so great recommendation thanks so much for um, coming in and spending time here at uh, Humanity Hub uh, to on a Friday morning to uh, World Orangutan Day so uh, to have a chat to us well thank you so much for having me thank you this was Asymmetrical Haircuts, your international justice podcast created and presented by Janet Anderson and Stephanie van den Berg. This episode was produced in partnership with JusticeInfo.net, an independent site covering justice efforts for mass violence. The music is by Audionautics.com and you can find show notes and everything about the podcast on AsymmetricalHaircuts.com. This show is available on every major podcast service, so please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word.